Hello and welcome to the Gentleman's Journal podcast, our fortnightly discussion all about success, modern business and the lives of entrepreneurs. I'm Joe Bullmore, I'll be your host for the day and I'm joined this afternoon by August Bardbringius and Jacob Dworsky, who are the founders of Ask It, the fashion brand that doesn't want you to buy clothes. The company was set up in 2014 and it focuses on a permanent collection of a few very well-made and beautifully designed garments. There are no seasons, no sales, no gimmicks and no fads. And the manifesto at Ask It is simple. Buy less, buy better and keep it longer. In this episode, the boys talk about their first impressions of one another, their love of crayfish and schnapps, why the word sustainability is rubbish and how a year-long odyssey in creating a single t-shirt nearly drove them mad. Enjoy. But before we begin, I'd love to tell you about the Clubhouse, a new kind of private members club brought to you by Gentleman's Journal. Clubhouse members get two bumper issues of Gentleman's Journal magazine delivered straight to their door, full of all those invaluable insights from the worlds of entrepreneurship, style, politics and culture that you'd expect, as well as exclusive deals with a range of partner brands, restaurants and hotels, not to mention some lovely invitations to some very exciting events across the year. In fact, our podcast listeners, which is you... Now get 20% off a Clubhouse annual membership, meaning you'll get the full Gentleman's Journal experience for just under £48 a year, which sounds a bit like a bargain to me. Just enter the code POD20 at thegentlemansjournal.com slash club. That's P-O-D-20 at thegentlemansjournal.com slash club. Right, on with the podcast. Guys, thanks for joining us on the Gentleman's Journal podcast. Where are you calling in from? So, yeah, thanks so much. Uh, it's, it's our pleasure, really. We're um, zooming in from uh, Stockholm, Sweden. Nice. What's it like in Stockholm? You guys are either the darlings of the, of the COVID set or you're the villains, depending on who you ask. Feels like we're the villains to most people. Okay, <laughs> fine. <laughs> But it's good here. I didn't think we were going to get into politics, but uh, we already have. There you go. We'll try and avoid it from now on. That's probably a good rule. So yeah, how how is it over there? Is it hot and sunny in Sweden in in September or is it cold now? Fall kind of just, or autumn just broke in here. So uh, weather's okay, but it's pretty chilly. Uh, So it's around uh, 12 degrees centigrade right now. Uh, Okay. But but so far it's nice. Uh, So hoping for a nice September. I was just reading this morning your... um, the Ask It founding story, right? Which which grabbed me because most people, it's kind of a lightweight introduction to the brand. But for yours, I felt like it was a true manifesto against things that are wrong in the fashion industry and what you guys want to do to fix it. What do you think then? Let's get straight into it. What's the number one problem we've got to we've got to fix in fashion? What are we railing against here? So I think the number one problem is really. Um, uh, a, a systemic property of the fashion industry, which is that it is based on constant uh, replacement, that seasons and their ever-increasing frequency dictate uh, an ever-growing rate of consumption that um, has an enormous impact on our planet. And basically, at the current rate, we're not going to be able to catch up and sort of rebalance the scales unless we just slow down and reduce the rate of renewal and replacement and consumption and production. Yeah, I mean, in simpler terms, it's the the sheer quantity of clothing being produced and discarded on a yearly basis. 
So where does Ask It then fit in, in, into all this? You make beautiful clothes, obviously, but it's more than that, isn't it? It's bigger. Exactly. So, I mean, it might sound paradoxical. After all, we are a um, clothing brand, right? So we, we were yeah. selling clothing. Um, but whereas the, the, the traditional fashion rule is to have as many people as possible buy as much clothing as possible, as frequently as possible, we want as many people as possible to buy as few items as possible and keep them as long as possible. Uh, so essentially, with our permanent collection as the foundation, we have a lot more time and resources to create garments that are better from the start in terms of the materials we choose, the suppliers and the, the factories that we use to uh, choose to partner with. Uh, and these garments, since it's a permanent collection, need to be timeless um, by definition because our rule is that they have to exist forever in our collection. That's the only way we can have the resources to yeah. and the time to you know, research them all the way back to the, to the farms. And that's the only way we can provide a better sizing system. And that's the only way we can avoid sales and discounts, basically, is yeah. the permanence of the garments. Um, that's really the, it, it might be the most uh, sort of uh, boring aspect of our business model, <laughs> that basically we only do timeless basics, but it is also the most radical one. So let's go back then to the start and how this all kicked off, because you both met at the Stockholm School of Economics, if I'm right. What was your first impressions of, of the other one? I'll let you go first, Jacob, if you want. <laughs> uh, well, uh, so, and yeah, as you say, we met the very first day. We were bundled into a, a small group of people, I guess like 10 or 20 people, and we happened to be in the same one. Uh, and I remember quite distinctly that my first impression of August was that he, you know, he was the only one in the auditorium that actually wore a jacket to the first day of school. Ah. And so I thought, you know, maybe, yeah, that's a little bit uh, preppy or like, what does he think this <laughs> is? <laughs> sort of, uh, but uh, got over that quickly and yeah, we, we fast became friends. Okay, your turn then, August. What was Jacob wearing? I'm interested to know. Oh, that's a good question. We do have pictures uh, from that very first meeting, from that first day at school that we show uh, uh, our team here at what, once uh, every now and then on onboarding. Yeah. Uh, but I think you, you were wearing a shirt and sneakers and uh, uh, slacks or something like that. Yeah, I think I had chinos and a t-shirt, yeah. but I often get uh, critique of, on that one that it was too, uh, it, it had like a scoop neck. Right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Scoop neck time. No, so I guess that, uh, I think that Jacob has more of a first impression of me than the other way around, yeah. probably. That's the way to say it. <laughs> Fair enough. And were you scheming from the off? Were you planning to do entrepreneurial ventures together from, from day one? I think it didn't take long until we um, realized that both of us were interested in, in, in building a venture of our own. Um, and it was, you know, uh, it was at the time where uh, in business schools, you know, the traditional career paths of management consulting and finance and banking were slowly sort of losing in popularity in, in, in favor of um, the entrepreneurial track with sort of tech boom 2.0 yeah. and all that. Uh, so th there was a bit of that entrepreneurial spirit going on and, and we kind of uh, found each other there. Uh, but it really took a few years until uh, we put pen to paper and actually started working on the specifics of, um, of Ask It. Um, yeah. 
And what was the initial spark there? What made you think that this was something that you could actually put all your time and energy into? Was there a moment or a conversation that kicked it off? I don't think there was like a particular eureka moment, sort of. Yeah. The idea came came slow and steady uh, and a lot from our own personal frustration with, you know, not being able to find the simple garments that make up the, the core part of our wardrobes. I think we shared that and we bounced around a lot how to... Uh, how would you build a, a basics brand today if you don't have all the legacy from uh, from previous ways of working? Uh, but I think when we really started uh, started feeling that you know there's there's a good idea behind this is um, I think we saw a lot of companies in the U.S. that really made it big by uh, by going direct to consumer and proving. Yeah. Uh, that you could build a brand online first, which which wasn't you know self evident at the time. Uh, so I think that really gave us the confidence. Uh, and then we actually took a course in school in writing a business plan, and yeah. we started liking that one, and it kind of grew from there. We won some prize money there based off of that, um, which kind of reduced the hurdle to actually yeah. put the money into starting a limited uh, corporation. Um, so yeah, it's not that uh, sort of charming eureka moment entrepreneur story and we don't describe ourselves as you know the traditional entrepreneurs that sold lemonade at the side of the road from age six basically um i think that's a that's a glorified image of what an entrepreneur should be um some things grow on you slow and steady and take a bit of time until you you really kick it off so you you registered this company why why that name where did the name come from um, yeah, Asket in Swedish is, is a person that refrains from excess in a lot of ways. Uh, it, taken to its extreme, it's maybe even, you know, uh, too much and slightly religious, but it's our metaphor for really focusing on what's important and not all the embellishments and everything else around clothing. Uh, so that's, that's where yeah. it came from. We had a lot, bounced a lot of other bad ideas around, but we, we felt that one was a was a nice way to describe a little bit also what, what our philosophy is. Exactly. And in a way, at that time, um, the metaphor was really for stripping clothing from the unnecessities and focusing on, you know, what is important, the fabric, the fit, um, and, and the few details that you need. But as we've grown and become, you know, we've always been product-centric from the start, but have evolved to, you know, this greater mission of slowing down consumption, and uh, with, with better garments being the vehicle, um, that name and what it stands for is, you know, um, it, it's, it works even better today, really, because it is about that almost religious philosophy and, and seeking happiness in fewer but better items. Someone said the phrase to me, enough is plenty. Yeah. <laughs> which I like. That's a good one. That's a really good one. Um, I like your approach to it because neither of you studied fashion. You weren't in the fashion world. You were outsiders to it. What was your views, perhaps naive views maybe, of how the world worked before you got your teeth stuck into it? I think we had, um, we really didn't have a lot of experience from fashion. We, we sort of scoured our network and LinkedIn and whatnot and found one person, a friend of a friend's friend's dad, basically, who uh, worked at uh, a fashion company here in Stockholm. And we presented our beliefs to him and they were basically 
funded on the fact that the the poor offering um, in fashion is a result of the the stress of uh, this constant replacement and the increasing frequency of seasonal collections, um, and you know that. Uh, sizing uh, was limited to standard sizes, uh, excess to XL, and had been for, for decades due to, you know, manufacturing simplicity, and that essentially all the things that we wanted to fix were really related to the legacy of pushing costs in production to have uh, high enough margins to cope with, you know, uh, seasonal bets and then end-of-season sales. Uh, so really sort of building, trying to cope with the insecurity that the the industry is intrinsically creating. Yeah. Um, and, and that was confirmed pretty, pretty early on that um, by refraining from that dominant logic, uh, we could do things very, very differently. And that was very motivating. And wh- where does seasonality come from? Where, where does that originate? Because I can't imagine... I don't know, in the 40s or 50s, people had the money or the inclination to be buying seasonally. When did it really kind of kick off? What's the origin of this new beast, I suppose? I dare not say exactly when it started, to be honest. But I mean, the, I, I would assume uh, that the original idea of it was to create sort of a, uh, you know, what's it called? Um, planned obsolescence or like mm-hmm. to, it, it's a way to increase your sales. Yeah. But if we, if we create, you know, the need for new clothing when there's actually no practical need for it, uh, then we can sell more every year because otherwise, you know, you have your, uh, your shirt, you're not going to buy it next year, uh, which is more our philosophy that, you know, welcome back in three or five years then when you need one. Um, but it's really been sort of fast forward in the last 10 to 20 years uh, with the event of fast fashion mm. and, you know, going from runway to store much more quick and going from two seasons to, I guess, now you can have six seasons and, uh, you know, mid-season drops and everything. So it's really spun out of control in the, in the last uh, two decades, I would say. Amazing. It really is. I mean, it's a huge construct that perhaps somewhere started with, um, you know, the the seasons of the year, basically, summer and, and, and winter, essentially. And then with fashion shows initially serving uh, for brands to be able to showcase garments to um, buyers and these fashion shows growing in scale. And then with globalization, um, having sort of the media and uh, attention around brands and seasonality growing and growing uh, and then having you know brands uh, going global with store networks and all of this needs to be filled with news all the time and with globalization and increased competition i think it's just spun out of control and there's a whole industry obviously as you say built up in in perpetuating that newness of which sadly you know, my industry and my magazine is sometimes a part. Has it been difficult to kind of go against that zeitgeist? I mean, I can't imagine people like, I don't know, Vogue open the idea of people not buying new clothes with open arms because they need to write about new collections, new clothes, things like that. Have you felt yourself against the grain a bit? To some extent, definitely. Um, I think that, um, I mean, just from, from, a, from a business perspective, so, you know, instead of having these, these seasonal collections, we've instead said that, okay, we're creating the permanent collection, um, you know, 
for about 10 years or so, maybe we'll create 40 to 50 garments and we'll spread that out a lot more. So we have, you know, a reason to speak every now and then. Then of course, um, our challenge in terms of reaching out and, and sort of uh, and, and making a dent in the media space is that, you know, traditional fashion media wouldn't be interested in another timeless essential in 15 sizes with 100% traceability. You know, it, it gets old kind of. So what we need to do rather is to seek the stories uh, in between our launches. And, and that's where, again, the, the fundament of, um, of the permanent collection is really important because we have so much to tell. It's because we put so much effort into these garments and we know everything about them. There's so much to tell about them. Um, their, their journey from you know, farm to final product, how we tweak them over time because we have a permanent collection and we're direct to consumer, we can take our customers' feedback in actually. Um, and, and sort of talking about all those steps and all that work and that nerdiness and the refinement um, has, has become sort of our vent in terms of creating headlines, if you will, or, or just engaging the customer uh, in the garment uh, rather than building up momentum for a single release and then having people spontaneously and impulsively uh, shop, basically. So you've got this idea and then you find this bloke on LinkedIn who's a friend of a friend of a friend. What's your first step after that? How do you go about getting the word out there, actually making a product? Yeah, so the first product we made was the T-shirt and we had a very uh, hands-on approach in figuring out how we wanted to do that. So it wasn't, you know, making uh, concept boards and, and drawings and stuff. We we took in all the T-shirts we had and we basically structured, like in a structured manner, went through them. Uh, what do we like about them? What don't we like? How do we, you know, out of these, what are the, the most timeless um, aspects of it, uh, what fits, uh, which one fits good and which one doesn't for what reason. So we really sort of dissected what we had and what we liked uh, as a first step uh, and, and created uh, sort of a, a Frankenstein from that. Uh, but then I guess the, the other part was really finding someone who could then translate this into to a product, so finding a factory to work with uh, and finding a, a pattern maker here in Stockholm that could help us with actually making the, um, the fit and the patterns for production. Uh, exactly. And, um, and especially since we, I mean, the size system, which is a very obvious difference uh, with our sort of matrix based excess to XL available in three lengths, having 15 sizes instead of five uh, was sort of, a big challenge in the beginning just to explain that to pattern makers and factories and then why we do it and um, and and sort of testing if that would actually work the hypothesis of people being squeezed in between sizes based on our own experience and Jacob being you know tall and skinny with a, a large uh, being like a, a nightgown and a medium like a crop top you need to somehow test that so we eventually when we had prototypes uh, of that size system, um, we would invite friends at sort of uh, pre-launch parties and just get these garments onto people to see if it actually uh, if it actually works. Can we get the same timeless fit um, onto much more body types than the current system caters to? Um, so that was very sort of a, a prototyping process. Yeah, it was a lot of iteration, a lot of sample yeah. conversions. And, and yeah, I think one of the you know, key things we also did was we, we went down to Portugal very early on to meet the factory and 
and really understand that process of making the t-shirts and figuring out uh, you know a lot easier to to solve some of the issues that we had uh, when down there instead of from here sending stuff back and forth uh, so how long did it take then from your you picking those t-shirts you'd like to actually having one where you thought okay we could sell this and be proud of it was it months or how long was it we started out probably in December 2014, um, working on putting together our specs and, and sort of our, our requirements. And then I think uh, the first T-shirt that we approved for production was in July 2015, uh, so six months' time. Um, but that may, might not sound all too much, but you have to bear in mind that we spent six months only working on that t-shirt that was basically yeah. everything we did uh, and it was driving us nuts and then uh, eventually when we um, had sort of sold that first production round um, we started to get feedback in from our customers uh, and as you know nerdy business students of course we directly employed our survey and market research skills so we you know started uh, hammering out surveys to our customers and asking them for all these nitty-gritty details and then eventually I think in November of the same year, we ended uh, on the T-shirt uh, basically as it is today. So it took about 12 months, 11 months almost uh, to get it right. So what did you learn from the research? What is it that most men want in a T-shirt? What are they looking for? I mean, to some extent, everyone has subjective uh, preferences, but, but what we find and sort of it's our definition of um, the T-shirt, um, it, it starts with the fabric, really, that you want a, a rather sort of compact mid-weight fabric that doesn't feel too flimsy. Um, and in terms of the neckline, uh, I think most people prefer something that is a bit tighter around the neck, a little bit more snug, it sort of it gives that... Uh, a bit of a, a flattering uh, drape. You focus your eyes on sort of um, the the uh, the neckline, and then sleeve length. You want to be sort of mid bicep with a straight fall, not those sort of flappy flaring um, yeah. uh, sleeves that are all and over that, the place. That was like one month of the whole development phase, getting the sleeves to fall properly. <laughs> so, wow. Uh, yeah, so we actually ended up with a, a pattern construction of the T-shirt that is more like a, a jacket or a suit jacket um, than a traditional T-shirt uh, to be able to shape the sleeves in the way that we wanted it. So who was on the mood board? Who did you stick to your walls when you were looking at the kind of icons of T-shirts? Is it Marlon Brando? I mean, who wears the quintessential T-shirt best? Yeah, I mean, we really do go back to those old school uh, role models or, or like yeah. Yeah, Marlon Brando was up there, James Dean was up there. Steve McQueen. Um, I mean, personal preference, I would say James Dean. Uh, yeah. Were it best, um, <laughs> most similar to what we're aiming for probably. But it, it's the same with all the garments we make. We, we go back and try to look, what did it look like? 50 years ago, because that gives you a good idea of what, what is timeless and what has shifted along the years. Uh, so we, very contradictory to normal fashion, we look backwards instead of forward uh, in design. We think of Scandinavians, this may not be fair, as being kind of understated, minimalist, very sleek and simple. Do you think that's a fair assessment? Do you think, um, I don't know, a Spanish person could have made your brand? Well, um, let's not go out on thin ice here. I think uh, sort of anyone with the right idea and the right resources could have probably um, 
pulled it off. In the end, it's really about execution um, and, and trying to make that idea actually happen. But you're definitely right that, you know, um, Scandinavia, that, that association of minimalism is definitely true in, in practice, not just when it comes to fashion, but interior design, architecture. Um, uh, that's definitely, uh, definitely the case. And of course, since we're you know, uh, we are we are Swedish. Uh, we are, uh, for the larger part, at least, grown up here, uh, and a lot of Swedish brands uh, have sort of been reference brands for us. You know, the Philippa Kays, um, etc. Um, that's definitely been a large influence um, on us and and on sort of finding that definition of what um, what the timeless essentials are. And also, I think goes very in line with you know removing anything that doesn't like serve a purpose or add value to the garment, really stripping them down. I think that's uh, you can recognize that in a lot of uh, Scandinavian design uh, decisions. Exactly, sort of trying to really merge functionality with aesthetics and find that crossroads. Yeah. And which other brands away from aesthetics maybe influenced you? Which companies who were doing things like disrupting the sizing pattern? Who was just shaking things up in a way that no one had really considered before that, that you looked to? One brand that is, uh, uh, I mean, it's been a little bit of turmoil around it now, but does deserve a lot of cred uh, in that space is Everlane, who started, you know, in 2011, uh, in the States uh, with, I think they were the first, uh, maybe Bonobos was before them in terms of the direct-to-consumer model uh, with their trousers, but Everlane was among the first um, direct-to-consumer model to try and bring transparency into um, the fashion industry. Um, and, and so um, I, I think they do deserve a lot of cred for that. Um, and then we've tried to make that into something, you know, even more extreme and, and even free of compromise when it comes to, to transparency. But also uh, not just taking products online, cutting out the middlemen and providing them you know, at, a, at a more affordable price, but actually rethinking the way we create the products, uh, such as with the sizing and, and all those aspects. Yeah, I think we borrowed a little bit uh, from everywhere. So other than that, like sizing, I think we looked a lot at, you know, there was a gap, there is the traditional sizing, and then you have the, you know, made to measure. And in between there, we actually didn't see, see any real, a lot of options, at least not in the kind of garments we made. Maybe in shirts, you have sleeve length sometimes, or in, in suit jackets and stuff, but you, you don't have that for t-shirts or hoodies. And so I think we looked at systems that work in other types of garments and moved that into more, you know, uh, leisure wear, uh, and then I think inspiration in other terms has come from a little bit of everything. I mean, we uh, look at the food industry and how transparency has, has become a, a big talking point there, and how brands work with that as as a value add. Um, and in communication, I think we, you know, we. I'm not sure if you're familiar with Oatly, uh, um, the uh, oat milk uh, oh, brand. Yeah and how they communicate around, you know, uh, an alternative to the conventional yeah. way of doing things. It's amazing. If you look at Oatly's branding, I think from 10 years ago, it's completely different. It looks terrible, like a kind of, I don't know, a health supplement or something. And now it looks like a cool lifestyle brand. It's amazing what they've turned around just by communicating differently. 
No, absolutely. I mean, they you know they really punch above their weight. I mean, they're fairly large now, but they have been punching above their weight uh, for a long time, and and that's a huge source of inspiration. I'm interested in how um, the sizes break down because my understanding in traditional models is it's something like one, two, three, two, one. Is that right? In extra small up to XL. What's the breakdown in um, in your sizes, and what's the most common? What's the most common male body shape, I suppose? <laughs> so I mean, uh, so we have um, just for for backup reference, uh, XS to XL in, in short, regular, and long. Uh, and quite naturally, the most popular size still is the medium regular, uh, yeah. because I, I mean that's how sizes are designed in the beginning. The medium is to be uh, the most common one. Uh, but it, what we see that is interesting is that between the lengths, so how many shoes uh, regular, for instance, about as many choose the long version as the regular. Uh, and the short version is slightly less uh, popular, but still, uh, you know, all the sizes are being bought. All of it is relevant, which has been very cool to see that, you know, there actually is a value in this. It's not just a gimmick, but people really find, uh, find their, their size in this that they wouldn't otherwise have the option to, to choose. You did a Kickstarter campaign early on when you had that first T-shirt. Kickstarter is interesting because now it seems like a bit of a, an anachronism, a bit backward. And we had um, John Foley, who founded Peloton on the podcast last week. And for him, even though it was obviously an incredibly successful business afterwards, I think on the Kickstarter, they sold basically nothing. And it was, in his eyes, a bit of a flop. But how did it go for you guys? So I think we managed to, I'm not exactly, exactly sure when, when, when they launched their campaign, but um, in 2015, uh, in spring, when we launched ours to fund that first production round, um, it was still a pretty good platform in terms of sort of, um, I mean, fashion is definitely not the biggest, uh, um, the biggest share of Kickstarter projects. Uh, but it was still okay, uh, and we had seen quite a few fashion or clothing brands uh, doing successful campaigns. But um, I think, you know, uh, if we would do it again, we probably wouldn't launch on, on Kickstarter. Uh, it was a great way at the time to engage with an, an initial community to get that proof of concept, get those first loyal customers that are really caring about the, the product and, and, and the mission. And a large part of those customers are still with us uh, today, or the majority of them actually, which is fantastic. Um, but the platform has changed and, and you know, it's very gadget focused. And to some extent, it has lost the credibility in terms of being sort of a, a grassroots uh, platform to fund the projects that otherwise wouldn't get funding when you have sort of big corporations doing uh, projects on there too. Um, it loses the appeal a bit. So how did you, you then grow it after you'd found that initial base of people? You couldn't, I suppose, keep just doing a T-shirt forever. You needed more. How did you grow it? Did you seek investment? Did you seek advice? And who did you bring into the team? So for the first few years, it was really just Jacob and I, actually. We, we had support from a creative agency here in Stockholm that helped us sort of um, set the fundaments of the, the visuals and, 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 you know, and tonality and, and helped us with content and, and, and video production and those things, which was a huge support. Um, but uh, for, a, for a while there, we were considering, you know, working with that one T-shirt um, and really sort of trying to scale that up and delaying the introduction of, of other garments. Um, but in an e-commerce 
business model, you need to get the average order value up to be able to sort of, uh, you know, have anything left after shipping costs and handling and all of that. Um, so we decided not to wait all too long and, and, and in sort of 2016, a, a year after launching the t-shirt, we introduced the sweatshirt. But it was very, very bootstrapped. So essentially, you know, we didn't, didn't pay ourselves any salaries. We, we had a free office that we got from this creative agency uh, where we had a little sort of desk space. Uh, we had the warehouse uh, in the basement of that office. We did the packing, the customer care, everything ourselves. And really lived from sort of one production of t-shirts to the next, putting that the profits yeah. of production into developing the next product and, and financing the next production round. Um, and, and that worked really well. And we were growing at, you know, over 200% a year for the first years there, 2015, 2016, 2017. But since we decided from the beginning to sacrifice the wholesale markup and give that back to the customer and basically, uh, you know, just take the product from the factory and mark that up by on average three times, uh, which renders a price point that is, you know, half of what you'd pay for a comparable quality in store. Um, we are running a, a low margin business model, whereas many DTC or direct to consumer companies take that margin and have a really profitable uh, business. Um, we sacrificed that. So that meant that it did take and it still takes time to sort of scale up and get the resources you need and, and, and to get the profits you need to be able to invest in growth. So sometime around 2017, we actually sought uh, investments from uh, business angels here in Stockholm to be able to afford um, a team that could actually help us. Someone who actually yeah. knew a little bit more about product than we did, for instance. Yeah. And getting investments always good, not just for the money, but also because it forces you, I suppose, to really scrutinize your business and everything you do. What were the holes that showed up? What, what did you need to sharpen up on? I think our main, um, main thing that traditional investors look at is, of course, your sort of growth trajectory. And growth has been and is still the main KPI and proxy for success. And that's what an investor wants to see. Um, and even though we were looking at individuals that were very invested in our mission, which is not about growth for the sake of growth, but uh, for the sake of influence and changing habits and changing the industry, of course, we still needed to somehow show you know how uh, what's the formula if we put this amount of money in how much growth comes out at the end and i think that was a big uh, something we were struggling with in the beginning because we were you know we had grown organically by word of mouth mm. building this uh, building our growth based on a really really good product uh, high product ratings and satisfied customers that would then become ambassadors for the brand um, and that's not so easy to quantify, you know, uh, yeah. how, how much organic growth can you, can you count on? Absolutely. And uh, I don't know at what point on the timeline it happened, but after a while, your story changed a bit from making the perfect T-shirt with the perfect fit um, in a timeless style to more a question of traceability and sustainability, which I suppose talking about margin makes it even harder to get that kind of margin. When did that become a big concern for you? It was a gradual personal journey at, at first, I'd say that, you know, when we started traveling to the factories and, and really seeing all the, the hard work and all the resources that go into making even something as simple as a t-shirt, uh, I think that was quite, uh, you know, mind bending for us. Uh, it was a revelation. Uh, and I think that was something that we realized that, you know, we want 
who also teach the customer about this. Like people have to understand that in order to actually care more about their garments and take care of them uh, and, and, you know, create meaningfulness in, in a garment in the way that maybe 50 years ago you, you actually uh, treasured the, the clothing you had in your wardrobe uh, and you would mend them if they break and things like that. Uh, so, and then maybe it took us until 2017 until we actually said, okay, you know, let's, uh, let's put this into to our branding document and like actually look at our uh, sort of our mission statement and things like that and how, how we incorporate it into that. Exactly. And I mean, we were, to be fair, we were, um, you know, radically transparent from the start since we launched the t-shirt, we provided the cost breakdown, uh, we showed the factories or some of the factories involved in creating that product. Um, and, um, and that was also a way to try and manifest quality digitally because since we don't have stores and, and we don't have wholesale and the customer can't touch and feel the product before ordering. So by showing the factories, uh, we can somehow manifest quality in the craftsmanship digitally. And by showing the costs, you can show what, what you're actually paying for. Um, but around that time, as Jacob said, in 2017, we really felt an urgency to do more than just that. And we felt that even though we were showing, you know, maybe half of the factories involved, which is, you know, uh, tons more than most brands, it wasn't the full story. Uh, and we felt that we weren't telling the full story and, and that, you know, we, if anyone with the limited amount of products we have, should be able to do better um, and dig deeper and really disclose the, the full journey. And, and that's when we launched the, the full traceability standard in, in spring of 2017, requiring us to break down the product into every single component from the cotton bales and the cotton fibers all the way to the final product and, and giving that information to the customer. Wow. Was it difficult to get that information? I don't know anyone else who does that. Where, for example, does your, does your cotton come from for an average T-shirt? So this really brings the, the question about difficulty to the point because mostly the cotton that you have in your T-shirt is not coming from a single uh, farm, right. single location. Uh, so that's bought at auction. And at this auction, multiple sources of cotton are brought together according to their, their grade of quality. And then they're bulked and then you spin a yarn from that. And at that point you lose trace of the origin. And so for our t-shirts, both of our, uh, our, our original t-shirt and the Lightning t-shirt, they're sourced in, in Egypt. And, and they're actually two of the legacy products where we still haven't managed to trace the individual farms. Um, but we will by next year because we're, we're opting for uh, organic cotton where we actually get the certificate and the single origin wow. farm. Um, but that, the logistics of the raw materials in the fashion industry is one of the biggest challenges in establishing single origin of traceability. So wow. last year in 2019, um, we launched 100% traceable merino wool, um, merino wool essentials. And that required us to buy five tons of so 5,000 kilos of wool in order for our spinner in Italy to say, okay, that's enough for us to uh, spin a yarn exclusively for you. And so we right. went to farms in Australia, we, we visited them and we brought the wool uh, to our spinners in Italy. And that was the only way to sort of circumvent the auctions and, and getting yeah. our batch of wool uh, directly from the farm. Wow. 
But, but even that can be quite hard. In, in, in cotton, for instance, even if you find a farm that you, you know this year that you want to buy from, and maybe you actually have the volumes to do that, they're probably even higher in cotton. But then next year, there's no guarantee that they have the same harvest and the same quality. So, so you might have to have another farm the year after. And that's also why a lot of the, uh, the suppliers actually have like a multitude of farms that they mix between. Incredible. I had no idea it would be that difficult. You've almost got to be an investigative journalist to get to the bottom <laughs> of where your T-shirt comes from. And it's still not guaranteed. So yeah. most your cotton's from Australia. Is that what you said? And the merino wool is from Australia. Most of the cotton is from Egypt, uh, but we also have American cotton in our Oxfords. Uh, We have Turkish cotton in um, our overshirts and, um, and for instance, the black denim that we're launching later this fall. I really love the, um, the seam labels next to the care labels. I think that's a really clever touch. Can you tell us about those, where that came from? Yeah, so that was really a result of the, the full traceability standard that we launched in 2017. We felt that we needed, uh, we needed a way to manifest the journey of the garment. Um, and so first of all, we put all the information, the whole supply chain, you know, where the buttons come from, where the thread comes from, everything on the product page before you buy it. So you have that information before you make your decision. Um, but then we felt, um, you know, um, that... And the the normal tag that you get in your garment, the made-in label, um, which always states a single country, you know, that's a relic of, of customs and, and, and duties, basically. You need to attribute the value of the garment to one country so you can apply the necessary import taxes. Yeah. Um, but it doesn't actually state anything of where the garment comes from. So in a symbolic manner, then, we replace that label with our label, which then states every single step of the journey. Uh, so it's quite a massive label. <laughs> Some people actually complain about the size of it and, and then cut it out. But it is in there and it also serves the purpose that, you know, um, if you aren't too bothered by the traceability and the origin of the garment, which honestly most people still aren't and, and we can't really blame them for it, um, then, then maybe you just buy the garment because it's timeless and, and it's high quality and, and, and it's a great fit. And then once you put it in the laundry, though, you turn it inside out or you check the, the, the laundry label, you'll find that label in there um, with the whole story, basically. And perhaps at that point, when you wash that T-shirt for a few times and you see that label for a few times, you'll gradually be nudged into sort of a more awareness of what it takes to create that T-shirt. And maybe next time you buy something that's not from us, you'll, you'll, you'll ask, you know, where's this really made? Is it really made just in Portugal or Turkey? It's very clever. It's a nice touch. And, and I mean, the thing that worries me sometimes with the fashion industry is that sustainability almost has become an extra add-on. Do you know what I mean? It's become fashionable in itself. I think they call it greenwashing, don't they? When people jump on the bandwagon of a cause, exactly. but only because they know that it's A, good for consumers, B, good for PR. Exactly. How can we tell who's the real deal and, and who's not? Should we name and shame some people? <laughs> well, maybe not. <laughs> Let's refrain from naming and shaming. But, but I think as a, as a consumer, what you can try to be uh, mindful of is that, you know, sustainability as a word, which we don't use because it is too broad, is just that. It is too broad. What are you talking mm. about? Is it chemical use, water use? Is it, uh, you know, um, land erosion? Are you talking about the ethical aspects of, um, of the working conditions, there's so much to it. Are you talking about biodegradability and sort of and waste? So what you need to be aware of as a consumer is that if you see messaging like 
100% sustainable or you're saving impact by buying this or this is climate neutral, then you need to have in mind that, you know, that's too vague to be, to be true, basically. Um, and those kind of statements where you try to, to, to make something very specific, like 100% out of a word that is so vague as sustainable, that just doesn't work. Yeah. I think that's a good tell that if it's oversimplified, it's probably not the, the, the most genuine. Uh, and if it's very sales geared. Uh, but other than that, it is a real problem. There is like just in terms of accreditations or like, um, you know, symbols for um, organic cotton or whatnot. It's, it's a jungle out there. Uh, and yeah. I think for, I mean, not even us know what half of it is. So how can you expect a, a consumer to know which, uh, which echo label to trust and not, especially since brands are basically free to come up with their own definitions yeah. and labels. Um, and that kind of boils down to, to what we try to say. And, 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 you know, in lieu of using words like sustainable, sustainable and whatnot, you know, our, our, our manifesto is just to, you know, buy less, buy better, keep it longer because really in, in uh, the sum of all these initiatives and accreditations and eco initiatives, is offset by the sheer growth of consumption every year. So the best thing you can do is just to, to buy less, to, to consider when you buy, is this piece gonna be, you know, make me happy just tomorrow for that party or also five years from now? Um, yeah. and, and really consider what you actually need and, and, uh, and, and try to see your garments as investments. It's funny that you mentioned parties actually, because when I think about my impulse purchases that really haven't served me well, maybe, Parties are the problem. <laughs> That's the fault. Who knows? Exactly. Maybe, maybe rental is a better model for parties. Yeah. <laughs> That's probably true. I, I'm sure you speak to your, um, your customers, your regular ones, a lot because, as you said, you are business school geeks, <laughs> I think you said. <laughs> when you speak to them, do they, do they come to you because you've got the perfect fit in a timeless t shirt and then they like the, the extra? of the traceability and transparency or do people come to you for the transparency and then stay for the fit? What's the breakdown? It's probably the former still. So, um, and that's really an important takeaway also when you're, when you're trying to do, or, or, or when you're trying to do something good is that, I mean, even though sustainability, if you will, or sort of slow fashion doesn't have that stigma that it might've had, you know, 15 years ago where you just thought about hippies and sort of hemp clothing yeah. basically it's still not the main purchasing decision. So to make our business, you know, fly and, and have it actually uh, financially sustainable as well, because, you know, otherwise we can't be around to, to change the industry. Uh, you need to create an appealing product. And currently the appeal of garments is still focused on, you know, quality and design. And, and in our case, since it's essentials uh, to a very large part of the fit also. And that's really reflected in what we hear from our, our customers that for the main part, um, they come to us because they've heard that we have outstanding quality. Uh, yeah. And then of course that goes hand in hand with uh, a lower impact, better quality lasts longer. But the share, that being said, the share of people coming to us because of our transparency and, and you know, um, being able to trust us that we know where our, our stuff comes from um, is definitely growing um, and it's growing um, because the general consumer awareness around the impact of, of clothing uh, is growing as well. 
how has that uh, approach then affected your competition? Have you noticed the people around you also adopting some of that language and maybe mimicking some of your strategy? Is it is it is it affecting a change in the wider community? I mean, of course, it's hard to say. I mean, we're a very small company still, so it's, it might be a, a bit bold to say that it's us who have affected this, but there definitely is a general trend uh, towards both. Uh, a lot of more talk around traceability. I think after we launched ours, there's been several larger brands who, who've launched their own kind of traceability efforts, uh, some more uh, simplified than others. Uh, and then also, I guess, in, in you know, our talk about uh, permanent collections or, or timeless styles, that's also become almost kind of a, a buzzword now that the industry has been in, ha having some troublesome years. Uh, and a lot of, I think, uh, brands are now moving away from uh, six collections a year. So it's, it is turning in that direction, uh, for sure. Um, but I, I don't think we can take all the credit for it. No, but maybe some, some of it, maybe. Maybe some. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So what are the threats then? What, what keeps you looking over your shoulder? What could come and eat all of your pie, so to speak? That's a really good question. I mean, since we're building something that we want to be around forever, we're not building this to, you know, um, jump out and, and sell out in a few years time. Otherwise, I don't think we would have ever gone into fashion. Mm. Um, we really want to build something for the for the long run. Um, and in that perspective, then, um, there's always this question about growth, you know, can someone come in and do the same thing and grow faster? And and yeah, probably if they if they have the same sort of endurance and and um, strive for perfection and and, uh, and the resources, then then they could. But it's not uh, it's not you know a technology game. It's not like um, the tech industry where you know you have the Spotify's and the Apples really competing to grow their platforms and amass you know uh, content and customers, and then it's sort of a the winner takes it all uh, in the end. Uh, there is room for um, a spectrum of uh, niche brands and, and there always has been in, in the fashion industry. Um, so I think when we look at, at, at threats or sort of what, what spurs us to, to grow faster is just to get the, get the word out and, and try to really bring our philosophy uh, to more people quicker before, you know, we've, we've uh, shopped our way to the end of the planet. Yeah, I guess Absolutely. the big threat, rather, and that, you know, we, we're not turning the, the industry around fast enough. Uh, and then, I mean, then we will also have problems uh, and worse problems than our business. Is there another way we can, we can tackle this at the same time? If you were setting up a business today that was hoping to tackle the same problems we're talking about now. I don't know. I'm just thinking about things like, as you say, rental or secondhand clothes, making that more fashionable. Are there other ways you can approach the same problem, do you think? Absolutely. So, I mean, if we define the problem being overconsumption and, and, and overproduction, um, you know, we're still putting out new clothing. Um, so definitely rent is sort of resale and secondhand is a huge part in dealing with the amount of clothing that's already out there. Um, and there's a lot of exciting stuff happening there. And we're also looking into prototyping um, how we can assume responsibility for the end of life scenario of our garments. Uh, so that's definitely a huge aspect that needs to be tackled and where even more so than with sort of sustainable fashion, if you will, we need to wash away that stigma of secondhand being 
uh, less attractiveness than, than first-hand clothing. When it comes to rental, as we said before, I think that's an optimal solution for occasional wear. Uh, and, you know, if we look at sort of student times and whatever, where there were banquets and, you know, diploma ceremonies, you know, do you really need that tailcoat? Do you really need to own that tailcoat? Absolutely not. Um, that's a perfect item that can be rented. And I think that can be extended to parts of the fashion industry that are dominated by occasional wear, uh, such as in women's wear, where that's a much bigger part than in, in men's wear. I think that, but also like outdoor for, for people who may only go skiing once a year or, you know, go hiking. Uh, yeah. Now this summer, there was a huge uh, hiking frenzy because people couldn't leave Sweden. Uh, mm. So it's been extremely popular, but everyone I know has gone and bought a super expensive hiking kit, boots and jackets and everything that they probably will use maybe once more again. Uh, that would have been perfect for rental, I think. Yeah. So what's next then for you guys? What are you going to put out? Have you got any more products on the way or any more initiatives? We do have a few products left until we reach the end of the road in the permanent collection. Um, I'd say there's, yeah, we have at least two, three years um, of, uh, of uh, product launches left um, at the normal pace, you know, three to six pieces a year maximum. But uh, in terms of, our platform that we're building um one of the big parts now is going from you know um, in terms of full transparency we've shared our costs from the beginning we've shared um, the origin of our garments from the beginning that gives a great understanding for the garments but now we're looking into sharing the impact or, or the environmental cost if you will uh, and that'll be among the first in the fashion industry to actually disclose you know the full balance sheet um, this is what it costs you, this is what it costs the factory, this is where it came from, this is what it costs the planet um, in terms of just raising awareness. So that's one aspect uh, which is a huge investment in really using all the knowledge we have of our supply chain to start calculating the impact uh, and, and reducing it from there. Uh, and then Jacob's spearheading a project in, uh, in terms of the responsibility we have at the end of the life of our garments. Exactly. So, I mean, we, of course, want to take just as much responsibility after sale uh, as before. Um, that, you know, we, early days, we've been focusing a lot on the supply chain side, but we're ready now to, to work on the use phase and the after, uh, after use. Uh, so, um, one of the big things now is figuring out um, how to do resale. How, how can we take back garments? What can we do with them? Uh, and really start closing our own loop a little bit. Uh, it's, it's very early. We've done just a small trial here, but next year we're going to uh, launch a, a better version of it uh, in Sweden, at least. Uh, so I think that's one step, and that's probably going to lead to, if that works well, uh, that we might look at rental for certain parts of our um, portfolio as well. Um, and yeah, I think those are like the two major additions to, to our business or, or like our concept that we feel really complete what we're doing uh, and makes it a, a grander whole, so to say. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Then there are small things. We're like totally revamping our packaging this year, trying to get rid of plastics and stuff like that. But it's more day-to-day -day improvements. Exactly. Of course. But we're already using, I mean, we're already uh, employing more and more recycled materials. And I'm not talking recycled pet bottles because that's a whole other topic, whether or not that's good. 
Um, but we're, this year we're launching a cashmere sweater from 100% recycled post-consumer cashmere and we're uh, launching a wool coat from 100% post-consumer wool. Uh, and so the technology is already there to create high quality garments from recycled fibers. Uh, and obviously with the, the addition of a take back program and us actually being able to take back used uh, garments hanging by their threads, then the dream is to actually put those back into our own supply chain. So basically really closing the loop. There's a lot of talk about circularity. There's a lot of, there's very little knowledge on how to actually do it. Um, but, but that's what we're envisioning. Amazing. Well, I'm sure you guys are going to nail it. You've got your, your head thoroughly screwed on, as we'd say in England, maybe. I'm not sure if there's an equivalent expression. Before you go, we ask these quickfire questions to everyone, if you've got time. I know there's two of you, so maybe you can jump in and out and alternate. You don't have to both answer. But um, I wonder what you'd both be doing if you weren't doing this. I'd probably be trying to design furniture instead Honestly, I would have probably have ended up in, in finance or consulting like most of our uh, peers from school. Well, thank God you didn't. Much more interesting this. What's your worst habit? Here we go. Snooze. Swedish tobacco that you uh, put underneath ah. it and is extremely addictive. I do that too, <laughs> but I would say I have something that sounds similar, but I snooze a lot. And so I snooze for an hour every morning, basically, with like a 10-minute interval. And yeah, ah. very annoying to myself, but I just can't stop. Okay, with the alarm, I do that as well. Impossible to wake up. Everyone I know who's Swedish does uh, schnuss as well. And yeah. I've tried it a few times and it's unpleasant. I don't <laughs> understand what you get out of it. It's, yeah. It gives you a horrible head rush as well. It's like smoking four cigarettes at once or something. Not recommended. Not <laughs> recommended. <laughs> it doesn't even look cool anyway. <laughs> um, <laughs> What's the most impressive thing you can cook? Probably a, a good grilled cheese sandwich. Okay, nice. Jacob? Don't have any impressive cooking skills, but I, I can bake a mean cake. Okay, that's pretty good. That's hard. What are you most proud of in your career so far? Probably last year around this time, we got a slot on BBC World News Live, talking to yeah. an audience of 100 million people. Uh, that was pretty nerve-wracking, but also pretty cool. Yeah, I saw the screenshots. You look very composed. You don't look nervous. <laughs> yeah, I think what makes me really the proudest is, is when we get sort of the customer feedback that, you know, we've actually been able to change their consumption and their uh, perception of clothing. So we, we sometimes get those kind of emails back, like, uh, you know, thank you for showing me. Uh, there's a, a different way to, to consume more like I really take care of my garments now or like uh, those sort of things. I'm really proud of. That was much more. Yeah. Humble. I'll just take what he said. <laughs> what's been your biggest failure then on the, on the other side of things? What's gone wrong? Our, our second garment, the sweatshirt was a terrible mess. Uh, we rushed it. Wow. Um, we were pressured to, to launch it and it had a, 60% defect rate uh, and went out to customers. And yeah, that was, we were close to breakdown there. Yeah, I think my answer wow. is on that one. Maybe there's the whole e episode in the sweater. We'll <laughs> have to come back, part two. Yeah. If you could learn a new skill, what would it be? Speak a new language. Programming. 
programming. But you already speak English and Swedish, presumably, Jacob. Yes, but I would have loved to have like French or German, maybe. Okay. I've only got English. I was in France recently. And yeah, I thought I could get by on my schoolboy French, but it really does leave you very quickly. So I'm very envious of you guys doing an entire episode in a second language. It's impressive. But programming, I think, is the one we should all be doing, really, isn't it? Otherwise, we're all going to be out of a job soon. <laughs> um, the last piece of advice you gave, what was that? I had a meeting today where I gave the advice that it's, it's better to grow strong than to grow fast, which okay. is also used a lot. Yeah. That's a good one. What phrase would you like to banish from the earth? On the topic of what August said before, anyone claiming that their company or product is in any way carbon neutral. Oh, wow. Why, why we don't believe that? Is that not true? It's, just, it's basically not possible. Or like you're, you're trying to frame it in a way that what you're selling does not have an impact, which everything we produce has. You're just yeah. paying an impact tax that funds a you know, pellet stove somewhere in Africa that might offset that impact at some time in the future. And, and any time I've looked at, you know, what's the cost of offsetting? It's so ridiculously cheap that, you know, if that was right. the case, we could solve this whole climate crisis by paying a couple of uh, pounds each and it's all done. So I, oh, I really see it. Yeah. Do, do you know the beer brew dog? I'm trying to find this advert here. Yeah. You know brew dog, the English craft brewery? They've got a, um, here we go. This is great for the listeners because they can't see this. They've got an advert that says F-U-C-O-2 and they claim that they're carbon negative. Yeah. Um, so that's nonsense, is it? I mean, we don't need to call out BrewDog, but it, that's, that's kind of, that's a bit dubious. Yeah, I might need to dig into what that actually means. But, uh, okay. but yeah, the beer will have an impact. Maybe they do something else in terms of regenerative um, farming or whatever that... Uh, might have a positive impact but the beer will have an impact okay so do your own research people don't believe the adverts uh if you could stick at one age what would it be and why 27 uh, that's that's when we started us and that's when i yeah. uh, met my fiance so it was a very exciting age i was gonna say 27 too i'm one year younger so that came for me that comes at one year into the asket journey when i met my girlfriend uh, okay, and that was uh, but that was fun times. It was very carefree entrepreneurship, no money, and uh, just a ton of time to 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 try to build something. Good answers, and important to mention the girlfriends. Yeah, <laughs> who knows if they might be listening? You know. <laughs> okay, good. What have you done recently for the first time? I played paddle um, this summer for the first time, and that was a lot of fun. I have to say. Yeah. I arranged my first traditional Swedish crayfish party. Uh, like a week <laughs> and what is a crayfish party? What does that entail? You eat crayfish and you wear like funny hats and you sing songs and drink schnapps. So it's sort of like midsummer, if you know Swedish midsummer. Um, well, but it's, I know the film. There's a horror movie about it. <laughs> <laughs> Have you seen that? And, uh, yeah. I'm too scared to watch that. 
the trailer looks absolutely terrifying, so I'm not going anywhere near it. But I hope your crayfish party is slightly less bloody than that. Yeah. I'll have to come. I, I think the sound of crayfish and schnapps and hats sounds right up my street. It's a very traditional Swedish thing that goes on in like August, September. It sounds perfectly tame. I'm sure it's lovely. What's your most treasured possession? I was thinking about that one. Perhaps my cats. I have two cats. Are they living possessions? I don't know. Can you cat? Cats? No, I wouldn't say so. No, okay. Yeah. But okay. It's, since we're uh, asketiska or ascetic, I mean, we shouldn't treasure our possessions too much. Uh, uh-huh. but, uh, I would say my bed. Like, like a year ago, I invested in, a, for the first time, a really nice bed. And I just love it. It's uh, yeah. my best purchase ever. Okay, good. I'm sensing that sleep is very important to you, Jacob. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, which book has influenced you the most? Might sound like a cliche, but um, Yuval Noah Hariri's uh, Sapiens. Um, oh. Started reading that around the first year of Ask It. And to be perfectly honest, it took me about two years to read it because it is very dense but it is tremendously influential in terms of just giving perspective on the, uh, how the humankind is basically unraveled to become so destructive. And that might sound a bit um, gloomy, but extremely insightful. Yeah, I have yeah. to agree. I, I read that one recently and got through it. And it's, uh, it was definitely a very, um, very mind altering book. Um, so boring that we have the same, but yeah. Maybe a more positive yeah. one would be um, Educated um, by Tara Westover. Uh, fantastic uh, story of a Mormon girl who sort of fights with, uh, struggling with uh, sacrificing the love of her family for the sake of education and illumination. Wow. And what's your personal motto? Is there an Asket motto that you have on the wall of your office or something? We should. Uh, we say it a lot <laughs> when we're frustrated, and it's uh, that uh, if it was easy, everyone would do it. Okay, that's very, very good, and it's very true as well. What's your idea of happiness, finally? Well, I, uh, part of my family comes from uh, southern Sweden, and we have a little house there, um, and walking out on the, the, the pier and going for a morning swim and putting on the bathrobe and getting back and having a sip of coffee in the in an early summer morning, that's probably sort of the, the quintessence of happiness to me. That's a great answer. Jacob, is it just sleeping for you? <laughs> <laughs> that is happiness when I, when I wake up and, and know that I can sleep some more. But uh, I mean, in broader terms, I think like really f- feeling that I'm doing something meaningful uh, with, with my life while at the same time, you know, not being too consumed by that. So having the time to spend with, you know, the people you love. Uh, cheesy answer but I think that's kind of the components that I I strive for Jacob August thank you so much this has been a lot of fun thanks for joining us very much absolute pleasure thank you so much Well, if you enjoyed that episode of the Gentleman's Journal podcast, you'll almost certainly love the Gentleman's Journal magazine, the world's finest dispatch from the front line of luxury, entrepreneurship and style. In fact, lucky podcast listeners like you now get 20% off our annual subscription. Just enter the code POD20 at thegentlemansjournal.com to find out more.